Have you found the book of Colossians, chapter 2? Look with me uh, at verse 11. And to begin with, I want you to simply notice the first couple of words. In him. There you have the great theme of this book. In him, a union with Christ. When we think of union with Christ, when we think generally of union, we always need to keep in view three great unions. I've mentioned these on a couple of occasions. Let me repeat them because they are of utmost importance. If we get our minds around these, we are well on our way to a full understanding and appreciation of the depth and breadth of the gospel. First union is this. The eternal union. What are we referring to? We are referring to the Father's election of his people. We are moving beyond the realm of time, certainly before the foundation of the world. And we are thinking of God the Father foreseeing humanity in its fallen state. And God electing out of humanity a people for himself. He chose us, Paul says elsewhere, in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is an eternal union. There is secondly a historical union. Because you see, when the Father chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world, he gave them to Christ, his Son. His son willingly came, sent from his father, and in coming he united himself to his people in what? Their humanity, body and soul. He became one with us in our humanity. And in our humanity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on behalf of those whom the Father had given to him, He lived an absolutely perfect life in fulfillment of the law. He died a substitutionary death upon Calvary's cross. He rose again, and he lives to make eternal intercession on behalf of all those whom the Father has given to him. The Son, having returned to glory, Christ, now seated at the right hand of the Father on high, the majesty on high, has sent forth the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enters into the lives, the hearts of God's people. All those whom God chose before the foundation of the world in Christ. All those whom the Father gave to the Son. All those for whom the Son lived and died and makes eternal intercession. The Son sends forth the Holy Spirit into their hearts, thereby uniting them with Christ. And so there is an eternal union. The Father is central. It's Trinitarian. There is a historical union, the Son, and there is a mystical, spiritual union, the Holy Spirit, whereby he enters in making us one with the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby we are the beneficiaries of all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. All grace flows to us from the Father by virtue of our union with Christ. And so look at those two words again, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, in him. There's a lot packed in there. Look at what Paul goes on to say. 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now return back with me to verse 12. Toward the end of the verse, there's a phrase, the powerful working of God. Do you see it? That is the title for today's sermon, the powerful working of God. And so what we want to do is understand and appreciate by consequence the powerful working of God. And how we're going to do that is as follows. I'm going to ask four questions of this text. And by answering those four questions, we'll have a fairly good sense of what Paul is saying in these verses and therefore a pretty good sense of the significance of that expression, the powerful working of God. I'm going to do a second thing. I'm going to give four examples. So I'm going to try to put flesh and bone, so to speak, to this great subject, the powerful working of God, and illustrate it for us in four ways. Does that make sense? You see our theme, the powerful working of God, four questions of the text to understand that, four examples to ensure that we appreciate it. So I'm going to begin with example number one. I've actually adapted these from a book I read maybe six months ago. Here it is, example number one. Listen carefully. There is a self-absorbed teenage girl who attends worship at her parents' church. She does not want to be there. She thinks it's boring. Her face is set in a permanent sulk. Her shoulders are hunched, clearly indicating what she thinks of others. She sleeps through much of the worship service. Her dress and disposition transmit an unmistakable message. I do whatever I want. She dismisses Christians as hypocrites, as if she were a beacon of honesty and sincerity. Her parents live in constant fear of her angry outbursts. Her siblings are the helpless victims of her verbal barrages. She is ill-mannered, ill-tempered, and just plain ill. Then one day, she's sitting under the preaching of the gospel with her shoulders back, her face open, her body relaxed, her eyes eager, her mouth smiling as she engages with the truth. What has happened? God has worked powerfully. That is example number one. Are you ready for question number one? Here it is. Why did God institute circumcision? We have to deal with this. Why? Well, it's obvious if you followed along as I read the text. Look again at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Skip down to verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So if we're going to make any sense out of this text, it's rather bizarre if you're not familiar with it. Circumcision? Where did that come from? If we're going to make any sense of this text, we need to answer that obvious question. Why did God ever institute circumcision? The answer is summed up in three words, sign, seal, symbol. Did you get them? Can I move on? Or do I need to explain each? I think I probably need to explain each. Sign, seal, symbol. And so in the first instance, circumcision is a sign of God's covenant. And so God instituted circumcision. We read of it in Genesis chapter 17. He instituted with that great patriarch, Abraham. And he instituted why? Because he had made a promise to Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so he made this covenant with Abraham. He made this promise. And he gave Abraham a sign, circumcision. Why? As a visible reminder of the promise. It is a visible reminder of the covenant. Not merely, simply a visible reminder that God has made a promise, but a visible declaration that God is faithful to fulfill His promise. And so circumcision was this visible sign of the covenant. God made a promise. And through that physical act of circumcision, it was a declaration of the faithfulness of God and that omnipotence was engaged to ensure the fulfillment of the promise. shouldn't surprise us. God does that throughout Scripture. One of the most common, common instances of it, examples of it, is back in, in regards to the, the flood. After the flood, God entered into a covenant with Noah. He made a promise. I will never again destroy the earth with water. And then he gave him what? A sign, a rainbow, not just something pretty to look at. That wasn't its purpose. It was a declaration to serve as a visible sign that God had made a pledge. God had promised something. God had entered into a covenant. And God, and the sign is a reminder of this, God will fulfill his promise. We can relate to that, can't we? I mean, those of you who are married, just look down at your left hand. And what do you see? Not the wrinkles, not the veins bursting out. The the ring. I'm talking about the ring. What is that ring? What is it? It's not just decoration. What is it? It is a sign that a day, maybe not that long ago, maybe decades ago, you stood before church, and more importantly, you stood before God, and you made a covenant. You made a promise. And the ring is a sign of that covenant. It is a visible reminder that you have entered into a promise. You have engaged yourself to do something. So why was circumcision instituted? Why did God bother with this? There's the first answer. It's a sign of God's covenant. Second is this. It is a seal of Abraham's righteousness. That is made clear. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 4. Why? Because he's taken on the Jews. And he's taking on those Jews who think they're blessed and privileged simply because they're circumcised physically. I'm circumcised. I'm a physical descendant of Abraham. Therefore, I'm one of God's people. Paul's point is simply this. Nothing could be further from the truth. You are sorely mistaken. 
True circumcision isn't something that's external, it's something that is internal. Abraham, let's take Abraham, the patriarch, as an example. When was Abraham saved? When did God justify Abraham? While circumcised or uncircumcised? He's appealing to their own history. All of them know it. While uncircumcised. You see, his circumcision was a seal of his righteousness. As a matter of fact, his circumcision pointed back to his justification. And so where do we read of the justification of Abraham? Genesis 15, God gives him a promise. Abraham believes God. He takes God at his word. And God reckons it to him as righteousness. There's justification. Where do we read of his circumcision? It's not until Genesis chapter 17. And so circumcision is a seal of righteousness. It served that great purpose, again, as a reminder that in and of itself, it is a useless right. It is an unprofitable tradition. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't work magically. There's no hocus-pocus going on here. No, it points, and Abraham is the supreme example of this. It points back to his justification, and circumcision served that function of the need to be righteous, that is declared righteous in the sight of God. third purpose was this. It is a symbol of spiritual renewal. It is a symbol of spiritual renewal. Moses makes that clear in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He declares that God will circumcise his people in their hearts. The prophet Jeremiah makes that clear. The prophet Ezekiel makes that clear. It's made abundantly clear throughout the Old Testament that the external physical act, physical circumcision, actually was a symbol pointing to what? The need for spiritual circumcision. The need for what? The cutting off of the flesh. What is the flesh? In Scripture, the flesh is used by Paul primarily as a reference to fallen human nature. And so we hearken back to the garden. God made Adam and Eve in his image. Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled. As a result, they plunged themselves into sin. The image of God was corrupted. Human nature, body and soul, at that moment became what? Corrupt human nature. Fallen human nature. A darkened mind, a hardened heart, an enslaved will. Adam and Eve, they begat children. They had children. Those children had children. Those children had those children. And here we are all the way down to the present. And one characteristic has run from Adam and Eve all through their posterity. They have passed on by virtue of procreation, what? A fallen human nature. Hence, the act of physical circumcision is what? The pointing to the cause of our depravity, our fallenness in sin, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, and how this is passed on perpetually from generation to generation. The physical act of circumcision declaring, look, something far more radical must take place here. A far greater surgery is needed Not the removal of skin, not the removal of human bodily flesh, but the removal of fallen human nature. And so it is a symbol, a symbol of spiritual renewal. Did you get those three? Sign, seal, 
and symbol. Are you ready for example number two? The powerful working of God? I think you are. Here it is. There's a self-absorbed young man. He resents his family. He's convinced his parents don't know anything. It's inconceivable to him how they made it this far in life. He views his siblings as a perpetual nuisance, and they view him as a constant irritant. They're the victims of his emotional outbursts and verbal bombardments. The only thing he gets excited about is video games and movies, more video games and more movies. He attends church because he has to, but he dismisses the people as silly. He engages in a running battle with any form of authority in school, at work, at church. He has a chip on his shoulders the size of Mount Everest. He is the epitome of arrogance, yet he is absolutely blind to it. Then one day, he begins to pay attention to what he hears at church. And the penny, kerplunk, drops. What was formerly bitter becomes sweet, and what was formerly sweet becomes bitter. He assumes responsibility for his actions. He demonstrates an interest in issues of consequence. His attitude toward authority undergoes a radical shift. His parents are totally confused by what they are witnessing. What has just happened? God has worked powerfully. Question number two, we return to the text. We're clear now on why God instituted circumcision, sign, seal, symbol. Well, that leads naturally to this question. What is circumcision in Christ? Because after all, that's what Paul describes in verse 11. In him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised. Now notice he gives a threefold description. In him also you were circumcised, description number one, with a circumcision made without hands. Description number two, By putting off the body of the flesh. Description number three, by the circumcision of Christ. In verse 12, he describes that third description. What is the circumcision of Christ? And in verse 12, he speaks of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Did you get the outline? Did you get the content? What is circumcision in Christ? It is surgery. Just as physical circumcision is surgery, it involves a doctor and everything else, uh, spiritual circumcision is uh, surgery. And Paul has three things to say about this surgical procedure in this verse. The first is this, it is performed by the Holy Spirit. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made Without hands. This isn't physical. This is spiritual. And it is a surgery, an operation performed by the Holy Spirit. Christ himself made that clear. And many of you have already run in your minds to where I am now going in John chapter 3. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes to him. And he's perplexed. He has some deep questions. He's working through things. And in the course of that conversation, that discussion, Christ declares to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And to remove any doubt, he goes on to declare, unless you are born, right, of water and of the Spirit, 
You cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Christ doing? It's very simple. What he's doing is simply comparing physical birth and spiritual birth. We, all, we have many things in common. I was right here. One of the things we have in common is this. We were all born. Another thing we have in common is this. We contributed absolutely nothing to our physical birth. We didn't ask for it. We didn't go seeking for it. We didn't arrange for it. We were simply, boom, one moment, born. That is the comparison Christ is making. The same holds true when it comes to this spiritual birth, this spiritual circumcision, this radical surgery. It is performed by the Holy Spirit. You don't get it. It's not something we work toward. It's not something we enter into by our own strength. It most certainly is not something we attain to by our own effort. The wind blows wherever it wishes. And so too does the Spirit of God performing this radical surgery upon man's heart whereby he brings about this transformation. The second detail is this of this surgery. It is performed on sinful human nature. And so follow the progression in his thought in verse 11. In him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised. Okay? I understand the first point. Performed by the Holy Spirit with a circumcision made without hands. Now here's a second point. It's performed on sinful nature by putting off the body of the flesh. Again, what is the flesh? He is not speaking of physical flesh, our physical bodies. He is referring to the flesh. That is what we call, what we designate as fallen human nature, corrupt human nature. We were born with a deficiency. We were born with a serious problem. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to state it later. We were born dead, spiritually speaking, dead to God. Our minds completely darkened when it comes to spiritual truth. Do not let our mind-boggling technological advancements of our day confuse you by giving you the false impression that we're advancing as a society or as people. We are not. We are the same as we have ever been since the fall of Adam and Eve. Our minds darkened to great realities and to spiritual truth. Our hearts hardened whereby Paul affirms in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks after God. Together they have all turned aside and become useless as worthless fruit. That's his point there. What do you do with worthless rotten fruit? You throw it out. And as a result, our will is enslaved. Yes, we have free will, but our free will is in bondage to our darkened mind and our hardened heart. That is our condition from conception. That has been the condition of every descendant of Adam and Eve, a fallen human nature. The Spirit of God performs a radical surgery. And the object of that surgery is this fallen human nature. The darkened mind, what does he do? He sheds light. Just illumination. What was formerly dare I say stupid, all of a sudden becomes life-altering. What formerly made no sense at all, all of a sudden becomes the foundation for life. What was gibberish before, all of a sudden, how, how could I not have made sense of that formerly? 
And he sheds light upon the affections, turning our hearts from sin to God. And the free will is released from its bondage to a darkened mind and a hardened heart and willfully comes to the Lord Jesus in faith, willfully repents of sin, turning to Christ alone as the only hope of salvation. That is the surgery that the Spirit performs. Thomas Watson stated the following, The corruption of Adam's nature is transmitted to us as poison is carried from the fountain to the cistern. So many moons ago, different context, different country, work-related, I think it was Tanzania, and received news of the need for something drastic in a village, rural Tanzania, because the infant mortality rate through the roof and the incidence of disease, unbelievable. They discovered that the, these diseases were waterborne. They were contracting them from the river. And as they began to research, you know, they, they began to piece it all together and, and why this was the way it was. You know what they discovered? It was because this was a, this was a village that uh, depended in great deal upon cattle. And they had their cattle contained by the river just a little upstream. And the cattle were always in the river, defecating in the river, making a mess of the river. The water would then move downstream, carrying everything with it, all these waterborne diseases and the effects upon people as they drank of that water. See, that's our condition. The water is polluted from Adam and Eve. And it is transmitted down generation after generation after generation, whereby we are born by nature antithetical to God. We are born by nature haters of God. We are born by nature at enmity with God. Oh, the need for surgery. The need for the Holy Spirit sovereignly, graciously, powerfully to enter in and to remove that flesh, perform that circumcision without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. And the third detail, description of this circumcision, right there at the end of verse 11 by the circumcision of Christ. And so not only is it performed by the Holy Spirit, not only is it performed on sinful human nature, it is performed, thirdly, through union with Christ. That's how the Spirit does it, by the circumcision of Christ. Now that leads to an obvious question. What is the circumcision of Christ? He explains in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so the circumcision of Christ is his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The Holy Spirit performs this radical surgery upon fallen human nature. How? By the circumcision of Christ. That is, by making us one with Christ, so that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is ours legally. Legally. Christ's death, because I am one with him, is my death. His burial is my burial. His resurrection is my resurrection legally. Meaning what? His payment of my sin in full at Calvary's cross is now counted mine because I am one with him. 
But not only am I one with him legally in his death, burial, and resurrection, I am one with him now virtually in his death, burial, and resurrection. That the old man, all that I was in Adam, was crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and I have been raised to newness of life in Christ. By virtue of what? The indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in me. That is what it means to be circumcised in the Lord Jesus Christ. A surgery performed by the Holy Spirit. A surgery performed on sinful human nature. A surgery performed through union with Christ. Now back to the examples. Example number three. Here it is. Of the powerful working of God. There is a self-obsessed, arrogant man. He so desperately wants to convey a certain image. His wife or the latest of his women, must be what he wants her to be. His car, his home, his clothes, his children, must reinforce his status, his authority, his position, his importance. He must always have the last word because he's never wrong. He can't afford to be wrong because his imagined image in the mind of others would crumble. His soul is full of bitterness because he is convinced He is the only one who recognizes his true worth. Then one day he is humbled under God's word. Slowly but surely he becomes poor in spirit. He actually seeks his wife's opinion. He actually encourages his colleagues at work. He begins to dismantle all the vain trophies in his life because he no longer defines himself by these things. He begins to dismantle the walls that keep him from potential rivals. He lets down his guard. He stops pretending to be what he isn't. What has happened? God has worked powerfully. Question number three. What is the result of circumcision in Christ? This brings us now into the realm of verses 13, 14, and 15. And we see that there are three great benefits, blessings flowing from union with Christ. Circumcision in Christ. The first is this. I'm going to call it fellowship. Verse 13. And you, here he reminds us of our past condition. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So again, that's fallen human nature, sinful human nature. But what did God do? God made us alive together with Christ. And so there's the first benefit. There's the first blessing. We're brought into union with Christ. We have the eternal union. We have the historical union. We have this mystical union. We're brought into union with Christ. Therefore, we partake of Christ's circumcision. That is his death, burial, resurrection. We're the beneficiaries of it legally. We're the beneficiaries of it virtually. And as a result, we have moved from a state, a condition of death, to a state, a condition of life, fellowship with God. Communion with God. God becomes ours. Our life becomes intertwined with His. His wisdom is now ours to direct us. His power is now ours to preserve us. His grace is ours to forgive us. His love is ours to delight us. His justice is ours to accept us. His faithfulness is ours to encourage us. His majesty is ours to render us glorious. 
His joy is ours to satisfy us. This is life. Now, I made a comment last Sunday. I think I repeated it a couple of times. And I was intentionally trying to be not controversial. I was intentionally trying to get us to think. And the comment was something like this, to this effect. We are as close to God as we're ever going to be. And that I never want to hear anyone ever talk again about not feeling close to God. One or two of you dared me on that this past week, but that's fine. My point was this. My point was this. By virtue of union with Christ, we are filled in Him. By virtue of our union with Christ, we have life. By virtue of our union with Christ, we are close to God. That doesn't change. By virtue of our union with Christ, we are in fellowship with God. It doesn't change. By virtue of our union with Christ, we are in communion with God. But how do we often speak? We speak in terms of, I don't feel very close to God. I want to grow closer in my relationship with God. Or we'll say this, I want want to increase in terms of my fellowship with God. Or I want to grow and increase in communion with God. Depending on what we mean by that, we might be wrong or we might be right. My fear is this, that more often than not, we're wrong. We are close to God. We are in communion with God. We are in fellowship with God. This knows no vacillation. It neither increases nor decreases. There are no ebbs or flows. We are close to Him. We are in fellowship with Him. We are in full communion with Him. The question is this. Do I enjoy how close I am to God? That's the question, brothers and sisters. That's the question. Our status does not change. Our condition does not change. There isn't more We have everything in Christ. We have been filled. The question of questions is simply this. Do we enjoy being so close to God? Are we living in the daily reality of what we are and what we possess in the Lord Jesus Christ? Fellowship. Second blessing is this, forgiveness. It begins right at the end of verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do that? How did God forgive us of all our trespasses, all our sins, all our transgressions, our filthiness? How? Verse 14. By canceling. Canceled something. He annulled something. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What is that? It is the law. It stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside. How? Nailing it to the cross. The Romans, when they crucified someone, a criminal, they would affix what they called a titulus above the head of that criminal. We're all familiar with this, right? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, as he hung upon Calvary's cross, they fixed a titulus, did they not? The king of the Jews. Well, here's the wonder of wonders. God nailed his own titulus to Christ's cross. And you know what it was? It was the law. The law. And the Lord Jesus, when he died upon Calvary's cross, that is what he was guilty of. 
breaking the law, and he was bearing the penalty for having broken the law, not in himself, but because our sin and our guilt and our condemnation were reckoned to him upon Calvary's cross. And by his death, paying that penalty, God annulled the law because his son satisfied its demand of perfect obedience. His son bore its curse in full and his son fulfilled all its types, shadows, and ceremonies and all that is left for the people of God who are one with Christ is forgiveness. Third blessing is this, freedom. Verse 15, he, God, here's the third blessing flowing from union with Christ by virtue of circumcision. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, so spiritual beings, angelic beings, most likely demonic entities in view here, the rulers and authorities, he disarmed them. And what did he do to them? He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. A little lost on us what this means, the language. We see it once in a while in some of those older films. You see that Roman general who goes off the battle and fights in foreign lands and he's victorious. What does he do? He returns to Rome, but he doesn't return alone. As a conquering general, what does he bring with him? Treasures that he's captured, prisoners, human beings that he has enslaved. And he returns to Rome, and all, there's all this, and these announcements and trumpet blasts and fanfare as he enters the city of Rome at the front of this parade. And in his wake are all of these treasures and prisoners, and he winds his way through the city of Rome, and all the people come out in celebration. And there's this, this great festivities as, as he comes back, this conquering hero. That's the image here. That's what Christ did to the devil at the cross. Do you understand that? That is what he did to every demonic force at the cross. He triumphed over them. He put them to open shame, embarrassment, public humiliation, and he completely disarmed them. How? Because the power of the devil is found in one word. Do you know what it is? Death. And the power of death is found in one word. Do you know what it is? Sin. And what did Christ accomplish at the cross on behalf of his people? He paid the penalty for our sin, thereby removing what? The fear of death, the penalty of our sin, breaking the law, thereby rendering what? The devil spiritually impotent, thereby disarming all rulers and authorities. These are three tremendous blessings. Capture Paul's imagination here as he waxes eloquent and, and digs deep into the significance of what it means to be in Christ. What it means th- th- to be circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I promise one more example. Example number four. You ready for it? Here it is. There's a woman locked in the mere form of godliness. She's always in place on Sunday morning. She reads her Bible every day. Her orthodoxy is stellar. She can spot or maybe sniff out a heretic a mile away. She's happy when the preacher tells the truth, but feels he should really leave the application to the Holy Spirit. 
She likes it when the preacher addresses hypocrisy and she sincerely hopes Mrs. Jones was listening. She lives life in the accusative case. She's very quick to let people know when they haven't reached the required standard. Listening to her is like drinking vinegar. Then one day, she begins to feel her heart sins and she weeps over them. She forgets all about the children running in the foyer. She forgets all about the color of the paint in the women's washrooms. She forgets all about the preacher's mismatched ties and shirts. She forgets all about the lack of church programs because this is a woman enraptured with the glory of God. She's found talking with others about the beauty of Christ. She's filled with thankfulness. Her prayers become the stutters of a broken heart. Her prayers crash like waves upon the shores of heaven. Oh, friend, what has happened? God has worked powerfully. That is the new birth. That is the circumcision of the heart. And question number four, back to the text, by way of conclusion. What should circumcision in Christ mean for us? Right here. Here we are. with February the 9th. What should this text mean? And all this talk about circumcision in Christ mean for us. Firstly, what should it mean for the unbeliever? It's obvious, my friend. You must be born again. You must know in your heart, your life, the powerful working of God. And when you know it, how do you know it? It's simply this you will respond to your king's command to repent of your sin and to turn to him alone as the only savior of sinners, as the only hope of salvation. Secondly, what should it mean for the believer? For the believer, it's everything. It's the difference between everything and nothing. It's the difference between feast and famine, between fullness and emptiness, between heaven and Hell. Hanley Mole wrote, To grasp this deep yet simple fact, union with Christ, to grasp this deep yet simple fact is to pour a new light into the heart and a new power into the life. Let me just quickly demonstrate why. Quickly. Number one, this union, Christian, this union belongs to all of us. His divine power, writes Peter, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Please hear me. There are not any degrees of privileges, blessings, or spirituality in the body of Christ. The issue is not, let me repeat it, are you close to God? Speaking to believers. The issue is not, are you increasing in fellowship? The question is not, are you growing in communion? You are close to God. You are in fellowship with God. You are in communion with God by virtue of your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is simply this. Am I living in the reality of it? Is this what pleases me above all else? Secondly, this union speaks of Christ's tender affection for us. 
Again, Peter declares, he cares for you. Do you understand that, brother? Do you grasp that, sister? He cares for you. If we wander, he guides us. If we stumble, he holds us. If we fall, he lifts us. If we err, he corrects us. If we grieve, he comforts us. Thirdly, this union speaks of his ardent affection. Not only tender affection, but ardent, fervent affection for us. He cherishes us because we are members of his body. Cherish. He cherishes us. Because we are members of his body. Thomas Watson penned, He who crowned the heavens with stars was crowned with thorns. On whose behalf? It wasn't for his benefit. It wasn't for his father's benefit. It was for the benefit of his people, his bride. Thirdly, fourthly, this union is the means by which Christ communicates all of his graces to us. We have been filled in him. Fifthly and finally, this union compels us to walk humbly, love deeply, and obey sincerely. I discovered an old hymn. I hadn't seen it in ages. Discovered it this past week. Let me conclude with just just reading a couple of stanzas from it. Hail, sacred union, firm and strong. How great thy grace, how sweet thy song. That rebel worms should ever be one with incarnate deity. One in the tomb, one when he rose, one when he triumphed o'er his foes. One went in heaven when he took his seat, while seraphs sung at hell's defeat. Oh brother, oh sister, do you understand what it means to be in Christ? No greater source, source of joy. No greater source of hope, no greater source of comfort, no greater source of thanksgiving than to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray now that you would send your Spirit from on high and bless the proclamation of your Word. We pray that you would work sovereignly, granting understanding, and we pray that you would Give us eyes to see the wonders that we have pondered and meditated upon this day. We're so thankful for your loving kindness. So thankful for your tender mercies. So thankful for your power and wisdom as displayed in the gospel. So thankful for your son, the Lord Jesus, and for making us one with him. Receive our thanks. Hear our prayers. We ask it in his marvelous name. Amen.